celebrate our fifth birthday this April, an exciting announcement. Up until now, our private community, The Secret Library Cafe, has only been open to students in my courses. We're now extending membership to Footnotes and Voyeur subscribers. Go to carolinedonahue.com footnotes to get weekly writing inspiration in your inbox and entry to the most supportive and generous community of writers I've ever met. That's carolinedonahue.com footnotes to receive your invitation to join. This is The Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 4, The Visible Writer. How can you be visible as yourself within genre fiction? How can you use conventional tropes and transform them in a satisfying way? We'll be exploring these and other questions this season. We're also excited to make this show more visible. If this episode is inspiring for you, please share it with a friend and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. It means so much and helps these conversations reach even more listeners. My guest today is Mia P. Manansala. Mia is a writer and book coach from Chicago who loves books, baking, and badass women. She uses humor and murder to explore aspects of the Filipino diaspora, queerness, and her millennial love for pop culture. She's the winner of the 2018 Hugh Holton Award, the 2018 Eleanor Taylor Bland Crime Fiction Writers of Color Award, and the 2017 William F. Deke Malice Domestic Grant for Unpublished Writers, and the 2016 Mystery Writers of America Helen McCoy Scholarship. She's also a 2017 Pitch Wars alum and a 2018 to 2020 mentor. A lover of all things geeky, Mia spends her days procrastinating, playing JRPRGs and dating sims, reading cozy mysteries, and cuddling her dogs. Arsenic and Adobo comes out May 4th, 2021 with Berkeley Penguin Random House and is the first in the Tita Rosie's Kitchen Mystery Series. I was thrilled to have Mia on because I have so many students who love, as I do, genre fiction, especially mysteries, and have felt hesitant in writing it, in feeling fully able to be themselves and visible within genre fiction. I think that this sense that we have that genre fiction is separate and therefore less impactful than literary fiction is no longer true, especially during the year that we have had together. Whenever I have a student or a client who says, oh, what am I doing writing a cozy mystery when the world is in such a state? I always ask them, what are you reading to feel better during this crazy period of time? The answer is usually a cozy mystery. So it's with great joy that I share this conversation with Mia and how she has made the cozy mystery a way to explore culture, take tropes and turn them and to make the genre her own. I'm really, really so happy to share my conversation with Mia P. Maranzala. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I have to say, in reading Arsenic and Adobo, um, I have rarely been so hungry <laughs> while reading a mystery as I was when reading this particular one. And I was wondering, how was your process while writing it? Were you snacking while you were writing? Or was it just you think about food I, I think about food all the time. So I wondered, <laughs> how did the food and the writing come together during the writing process? Yeah, I love when people talk about the food because that's like one of my favorite things to write. Like sometimes I'm like, am I putting too much? Maybe I should dial back. <laughs> um, for my writing process, sometimes like I'll have little snacky things, but I try to be careful because obviously I don't want that around my laptop. I usually will take snack breaks. Um, but for me, because the book is about like my culture, like Filipino American culture. And for, I think for like a lot of like diaspora kids, food is kind of like a shortcut to connecting. Cause I, I was born and raised in Chicago. I've never lived in the Philippines. You know, my parents came here in the seventies. Um, I don't speak the language, um, but what they instilled in me is a love for the food. And like, I, that's something I really, really wanted to um, put in the book. And I also wanted to show how like, 
food is like a love language, you know, because mm. in like in my family and in the, the 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 books family, like there are no overt shows of affection, right? Hugging is very, very rare, like almost never. Like there are no, I love you said out loud. You you show your love through service by making these delicious meals, by making sure you're taking care of things like that. And I hoped it, I hope it came across in the book. Oh, uh, definitely. That's why, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, like some people might be like, why is there so much food here? But to me, food means love. And that's why I put it in there. I love that. And I, I remember there's one moment that it came across very strongly when one character comes over. I won't give too many details because I don't <laughs> want people to, um, I want people to read it for the mystery. But uh, there's one character who comes to a family dinner and first tries to offer to bring something and <laughs> that this is a no-no. And then, because the thought is, you know, that, that he, it assumes that he thinks um, there's not going to be enough food there. And then tries to think he's being polite, not taking food with him when he mm-hmm. leaves. Um, and I loved what that was able to show about the culture around food in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like part of it, you know, like, especially like as, as an American, like, you know, like I, like I was raised, like you, like you bring a gift when you're a host, but like, if it's a dinner, maybe not necessarily the food, because it's like, what are you trying to say about their cooking? And, you know, like in my family, like you have to eat until you feel like you're dying. Like you, like you cannot leave until that plate is empty multiple times, you know? So I wanted to include something like that. Yes, absolutely. So how did this story first come together for the book? Like, I'm interested, did it start with a character? Did it start with a situation? Because it's, I, I hope it appears to be the beginning of a series. <laughs> and so I'm wondering who who was the first idea that came to you? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so luckily I'm with Berkeley and I'm signed for a three book contract. Yay. Um, so I'm waiting on book two edits and I'm currently brainstorming book three right now. Um, but I get like the idea, the, the book literally came to me like the first line you read in the book is the first is how it all started. Um, before I started writing it, I was kind of joking around with like my friend and mentor Kelly Garrett. Um, because we're both mystery writers, we both write traditional mystery, and I can't remember how it came up, but we were talking how like a lot of cozies actually have like rom-com tropes. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know, it's always like, very rarely is it someone who just stayed in their small, it's like someone who left to go to the big city, had to come back for some reason, they didn't make it, there was a divorce, the family was in trouble, you know, and then along the way they fall in love, both with the town and with like someone else from like usually their past and, you know, that kind of thing. So like I was, we were kind of, I wanted to play with those tropes, like like that whole first page is basically me playing with that trope. Um, But like I said, that first line came to me fully formed even with that character's name like I was on the train on my way to work and you know my name is Lila Makapagal and my life has become a rom-com cliche boom and I was like what like I had to like write it in my phone so I didn't forget it because I'm like this is a story like this is a character I need to follow like what her life is and that's how it started that's so great I have this theory sometimes, and and maybe this makes me a little a little cuckoo, but <laughs> I I prefer to think when I'm writing fiction that the characters are real and that I'm their biographer. And I kind of had that feeling as I was reading your book, like this was an entire not just a main character, but because they all have extensive families and then they have family friends and that they're all part of, well, most of them, some of them I think are are sad not to be part of such an extensive network. But I'm wondering, did it feel like the characters just showed up after, after Leela first did? Yeah. So I guess that's the interesting thing about writing. So when I started this, I had a very clear idea in my head who she should be. Mm. And some of it like still is there, but as time went on, as I wrote her naturally, parts of her character came out in other ways. So like, I kind of knew, 
I mean, family is always an important part of my writing. So like, I kind of knew that like the godmothers would be part of it. I kind of knew that her aunt and grandmother would be a huge thing, but like, I didn't know who they were. And I just knew she would have this network. And I just kind of like grew it from there. And they kind of grew into their own character. Like I didn't have like personalities for them. I just knew she needs this network. It wouldn't make sense for her not to have it but who are these people? And it just kind of brainstorming and writing. They grew naturally, like you said. Yeah, I love their their personalities. Like you have the calendar crew, which I love <laughs> there. I loved how everyone had nicknames and nicknames for groups. And they, <laughs> and also there was such great um, representation of different generations having different approaches, uh, different approaches, different <laughs> generations having different approaches to the world to the approach and to the situation the main character finds herself in, which is not mm-hmm. ideal. Yeah. Um, when somebody, when somebody drops over in their restaurant. <laughs> yeah. It was important because I feel like there was two different sides I, I needed to really um, showcase. Like there's a big divide between like homeland Filipinos and diaspora Filipinos. Like, you know, obviously like where you grow up impacts like your worldview and things like that. So like a Filipino American born and raised, especially in America is different than like an immigrant who moved to the U S or someone who was born and raised. So we have like these different worldviews and like that can cause clashes. So, you know, I'm not saying one is better. It's just like, you know, obviously I have one particular worldview and these are some clashes I've seen, you know, with, like within families. And then, like you said, there's the intergenerational, right? Like some of it isn't necessarily because one was born somewhere else. It's a generational divide and, you know, different ways of thinking. So like, I tried to have all these little nuances there. Yeah, I think they, I think they really came through and I, I'm, I've been racking my brain to remember who it was that said this. Maybe you know, but I feel like there's a well-known mystery writer who said that one of the reasons they loved writing mystery was because you can use the convention to share all kinds of other things about the world and Mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel heavy. You're just including things. And it actually comes to something you said in an article you wrote, which I really loved, um, and really spoke to me in terms of visibility. If I can quote you to you, if that's not too weird. This is (laughs) something I seem to be doing this season. I'm like, hey guys, I'm gonna quote you to you. Um, But when you received, um, when you were talking about receiving the Eleanor Taylor Bland Award and talking about wanting to showcase Asian American characters, and you said, my uh, my protagonists are Filipino American, not because their ethnic background is a necessary plot point, but because we exist. And I thought that was so important because mystery has certain tropes and certain conventions, but outside Mm -hmm. of that, you can include anything. Mm -hmm. And this was both like an education in food, but also just (laughs) a really fun read. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And I mean, like, oh, it's, it is interesting being quoted to yourself. You're like, oh, wow. Like something I said, but like, it's great though. Cause like, oh, something I said actually like made an impact or, or, you know, cause someone to think about things. So uh, thank you for that. Um, Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like that quote, it's really important to me because a lot of times like BIPOC or or other underrepresented marginalized authors, when you are creating some sort of media, you know, books, TV shows, et cetera, you're expected to like kind of center that, um, that, that, like that representation and it's supposed to be you know like a lot of times the bigger books that are centered around like people of color for example are like about the struggle you know it's about these difficult things you know for asian americans especially it's like the immigrant experience and the this and the that and like i didn't have that experience like i was born and raised in chicago um you know there's crazy rich asians which is like a fun gorgeous beautiful movie but like i grew up in a you know, majority Latinx working class neighborhood, you know, like those are not my experiences. I want books that feature people like me, just like having adventures, just living their lives, finding love, going into space, fighting, you know, like I want us to have the wide spectrum of being able to write whatever we want to write. Um, Cause I feel like, you know, like my background obviously like shapes how I see the world and how the world shapes me, but it's not all that I am. Exactly. You know? So like these things inform the character. Like you cannot just like have a character and then like slap a cone of paint on them and be like, oh, they're brown now. Like 
that, that's not how it works because there is still nuance. There is still like how you view the world. Like there are instances in the book that like, hopefully again, I, I managed to include. So, you know, even though she's from a small town, she's still cognizant of the way that because she's a person of color, her interactions with the police might be different than like, say like her white neighbors or something like that. You know, there's a scene um, that I had to kind of like rethink because she was getting like really testy with the police detective. And then I realized, you know, like if I were in that space, I would, I, you know, I would be seen as like aggressive. I would be seen possibly as a threat. And, you know, and so I'm just kind of like, oh, let me like, so I had to actually include a line where she's like, she puts her hands in the and kind of kind of like, oh, you know, sorry. And like, yes, it's a like humorous thing, but it wouldn't be true to someone's, like someone like my experience to not have like little subtle things like that in there, you know? And that's what I, the thing that I think really worked well for me as a reader, but was that, yes, it, it is, there is a huge influx in publishing of like, you know, I think a lot of people have called them issue books and they're really important, mm -hmm. but it does center like BIPOC experience equals struggle. And you're, you're not getting to see mm -hmm. people having just normal their own experiences outside of that, that that's mm -hmm. like the only way that, that it's being portrayed. And so on mm -hmm. the one hand, including a wider variety of experiences, that's more true to life and yet mm -hmm. not leaving out the parts that mm -hmm. are there and difficult. Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought that was great. Thank you. Yeah. And like, you know, I just want to go like, you know, like, like, yeah, we call them issue books or struggle books. Like those are beautifully written they are super important but that's not what I want to write you know I don't I shouldn't have to sell my pain to be considered marketable you know like I should be able to have I should be able to choose from you know if I want to write like a heavy lit fic I should be able to do that if I want to write you know a horror if I want to write a sci-fi fantasy I should be able to see myself in these various genres like you said it's about the choice yeah yeah, I think everyone deserves to have a choice. I mean, it's mm -hmm. there there are so many stories out there and we're really missing out if we're not if we're only hearing one kind of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> so, I'm always curious whenever I talk to somebody who writes mystery, how much planning do you <laughs> do and how much did you know about who done it? in the early stages of the book? Because I have heard both people who mm -hmm. plan everything to the T in advance and people are like, oh, I don't know, I got two thirds of the way through and I thought I knew who it was and I was wrong. <laughs> so um, where do you fall on that, on that spectrum? Kind of in the middle. So this is not the first book I wrote. Um, so like my first book was kind of like you said, like I was making up as I went along and in my head, I thought I knew who the killer was and I was wrong. And it involved so much rewriting. That's how I, earlier I said, uh, like I have a mentor. So I was part of um, a mentorship slash like pitch contest program called Pitch Wars um, that, you know, heavily workshopped that book. Um, it got me an agent, but unfortunately, it, you know, it never really sold. Um, but because of that experience, I came into writing this next book, which actually did sell with like, you know, with more writer's tools, I guess you could say. My mentor, Kelly, is like a very, very heavy outliner. She comes from like the TV screenwriting world. Yeah. So like, you know, so she'll have like 13 page outlines. Like I'm not that intense. <laughs> um, I employ something. So I'm a certified book coach. I went through Author Accelerator and the, the creator, Jenny Nash, has this system called like the Inside Outline. Um, I didn't employ it for the first book, but I employed it for the second one, which is super helpful. Um, I, I did use it for revisions, though, because um, obviously I wrote the book before I became <laughs> a coach. So um, basically... It like I will know the high points. Like okay. I like I actually kind of I didn't know exactly the ending, but I knew like how it would wrap up. You know, like I had that first line, so I know how it began. I had the general idea of how it would wrap up. Um when I was figuring out the characters, I kind of had like as I was looking it over, I'm like, mm, I think it's this person. And like as I started to plot it out, it like it turned out to be that person. But um mm. But it's one of those, even when you carefully plot ahead of time, you still like, 
So I think one of the reasons people don't like outlining because they think they have to stick to this rigid format. And like, no, it's a guide. It helps you move from point A to point B when you're stuck. That's all it's meant to be. You know, don't force your story into something that it's not. Um, so because even though I had this outline for this book, um, what I did was, because um, it wasn't under contract, so I had all the time in the world. I wrote about half of it. And then I, you know, I did like a quick like cleanup because my first drafts are so, so messy. Like, so like nobody will thank ever you, see my first thank draft ever. Thank you for ever. saying that. <laughs> they're so ugly. I mean, there will be entire sections where we'll be like bracket, insert scene, insert scene. Oh yeah, I've <laughs> <You> done <know>? that. <laughs> or, you know, like I hate writing descriptions. Descriptions are always last. So it'll be like bracket, insert description, bracket, insert, you know, reaction, like that kind of thing. Um, but I wanted to, you know, I cleaned it up a little bit and sent it to two beta readers um both of whom are mystery writers one was a lawyer the other is a pathologist you know with, um you know work in the medical world and oh, both nice. of them were like mia no uh this premise does not hold up <laughs> there are like huge legal ramifications because there was a part of like the early like the first act was like solid so like that didn't change much but like basically the entire like the trajectory of the second act hinged on a particular scene and bit of evidence where like if I had used it like anyone who knew anything about law and like you know like by like HIPAA like the binding you know medical field would have like been screaming at me as they were um because like it just did not track it could not hinge on this particular thing because it would, you know, be like completely unethical and, you know, but without that, it fell apart. So I had to completely reimagine how she got this particular bit of information. Um, so. So how much time did you spend on the story at the point when you made this discovery? It wasn't too far. I think maybe, let me see. And I wanted to say I started like April, May, 2018. This was like maybe fall 2018. It's like five or six months. Okay. Probably like five months maximum, I would say. Yep. Um, and because like, again, this is only the second book I've ever written. Mm -hmm. So I wanted like early feedback to see like, is this going somewhere? Does this make sense on paper? You know, because it looks so wonderful in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Always. But like you don't realize what you are or not leaving on the page. So I wanted not only like, you know, people who know the genre, but people who know this part, like those particular specialties. Because like, you know, like I was an English major <laughs> in college. You know, I was an English language instructor for a decade. You know, my background is all in like teaching, you know, literature. So I know nothing of the medical field. Like, you know, it's one of those like, oh, you're writing fiction. And like, I didn't want to get too bogged down in research. So like, let me, I wanted to like play it out first and I'm like, I can research later. And it was just like, maybe I should have researched like some of it <laughs> before creating an entire plot line, you know? Um, but so. I think it's possible to fix it. Actually, something similar happened to me in, in a novel. And, um, and I was like several years in when I figured this out. Ooh. Yeah, but it was, but I think the thing, it sounds like you did maybe, mm -hmm. um, which is what happened is that I just had to ask myself the question, how else could we have gotten to this point? Mm -hmm. and, and to trust that there is another way to get there. Mm -hmm. I won't ask you, cause I don't want to spoil anything, <laughs> but I won't ask you what it was, but I will ask you, were you happier with the solution you ultimately ended up using than the oh, one yeah. you had in, in the first place. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess, I mean, part of it, like part of it was me being a new writer and just like not knowing uh, part of it is me just like not being in these fields. So just having no idea, like it just not being in the back of my mind. And also part of it was like, if I really, really am honest with myself is like lazy writing. Cause mm. I like, I can, I can just say this part with, it's, it's not a spoiler, like in the book, um, one of Lila's cousins, not blood cousins, but basically in our world, everyone's your cousin, if you're close enough, um, is a nurse. And then this nurse had information about the victim that she needed. And in the book, the nurse just gave her this, like she gave her a hard ah. time, but she gave her the information, you know? And like, <laughs> my friends were like, that is so elite. Like that woman would lose her job. Like you can't have her do that. You know, like if I'm, I'm like, oh yeah. And like, if you really think about it, like how lazy is that, that I ask someone for information, highly classified information, and it's just given to me, right? Mm. You know, that's not investigating. That's just like, oh, well, I know somebody. Yay, this is lucky, you know? 
She does so, have a really good network though, in fairness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause like I was also playing with the idea cause you know, it's like a stereotype that like, you know, all Filipinos are nurse. Like my brother is a nurse. So like if that had gone to print as is, like I could never live it down. He's just like, you couldn't have asked me, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> so, you know, like in my head, I'm like, this is perfect. Filipinos are all nurses. You know, she'll be able to get this information. It's Part, you know, it's so good. And then it's just like, oh no, that's a roadblock. But like roadblocks are good for your character, right? Because exactly. it makes like how badly do they want to achieve this goal? How creative are they gonna be? Exactly. I know. I love how there's there's points when she thinks she's doing enough, but her her aunties <laughs> and grandmother are are like, You're not doing enough. You're not working mm-hmm. hard enough for this information, which yeah. I thought was great as well. So Something that you said before, though, that I mm-hmm. really want to circle back to, because if we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, you're at the point, everyone can get to this point and be like, wow, you've got a three book deal. That's really incredible. But <laughs> there is a, a point in time where you wrote a whole book, got an agent and it didn't sell and, and mm-hmm. yet you persevered. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that period of time and what inspired you mm-hmm. to continue on when uh, Lila appeared in your mm-hmm. in your head on the way to work. Oh yeah, you know, like I love talking about this because um, for those who don't know, this is like, this is the second book I wrote and it's also my second agent. It's not oh, my wow. first agent. Yeah, so, um, so as I said, after Pitch Wars, I was able to sign with an agent fairly quickly. Um, she really, really believed in that book. You know, I'll give her credit for that. And um, I was on sub for a year and a half with that book. Whoa. Right? And like uh-huh. for like writers who don't know, like, cause, cause there, I feel like there's so much misinformation. Like even people I know um, who are being published, like they have no idea what a normal sub period is like. Like they were on sub for like, they're like, it took a month for my book to sell. I thought it was never going to happen. I was like, girl, <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. You know, like four to six months, like four to nine months, I want to say is actually pretty typical, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, but everyone has this idea in their head of like an overnight success, you know, like I sold it within, you know, five days, you know, like it's, it's, if it takes time, it's not necessarily you, it could be the market, it could just be poor, you know, maybe the book's not right. There's just, there's a million reasons why. Um, so for me, that first book, a lot of the, it's, um, it features a queer Filipino-American protagonist um, solving a murder at a comic book convention. Um, Sounds really fun. <laughs> thank you. I really loved it. And you know, the thing is, lots of people had the same, like, this is really fun and I like it a lot, but I don't know how to sell it. It wasn't quote unquote marketable. Oh um, boy. Because, yeah, because what I, 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 it's traditional mystery, what I wrote. And traditional mystery, according to like because I actually made it to acquisitions three times really yeah or well technically two times and then there was like "Eh, it's a thing I don't want to get into but like yes I was very close several times and um so like it's not enough to get an agent to say yes it's not enough to get an editor to say yes there's also like the acquisitions team at a lot of um publishers and they're like the marketing people they're the money people they're like you know profits and losses to see if this is a good investment and to them I was not a good investment because traditional mystery skews older and white is what they said and I was clearly writing a millennial queer BIPOC character that they thought didn't fit the market so nobody would buy it. Um, and, and so like the, one of the best advice that I got before was like, when you're on sub, start working on the next thing, mm-hmm. right? Because like, it's so anxiety inducing. You can't control it. It's literally like, you just have to trust that someone <laughs> will love your book as much as you do. And you can't just sit there twiddling your thumbs, hoping it'll come. You know, one, if it's a series, maybe like start brainstorming the next book because you know usually if, if you do get picked up they'll ask like what else do you have you know if, the, if this is going to be a series and mysteries almost always are you know what do you picture happening next for this character excuse me um like don't write the whole book yet because like right. there's nothing like writing book two and book one doesn't sell and you're like oh no what do I do with it but like you know I was like okay I outlined all of book two I had a full synopsis ready I had proposal chapters and I was like okay set that aside and I'm like I need something new because a year and a half is a very long time yeah and so like luckily that like I said that first line just popped into my head and I was like 
this is it. This is how I'm going to distract myself because I've been on sub for a million years. Um, oh my goodness. So, um, you know, so I started um, Arsenic Dobo in 2018 and like it started off really great. You know, like it, like you said, like it won the opening pages, won the another Taylor Bland award. It also won the Hugh Halton award. You know, it got recognition. Um, but then there was like, there was a, the, there was a family tragedy that kind of put me off my writing for a while. So I had to take some time for myself, unfortunately. Um, but you know, like near the end of 2019, you know, like I pulled it together. I had a finished draft. I sent it to my then agent and she didn't like it. Whoa. You did not. Like, she was very like, and I will always say like, she was so honest with me and it was for my own good. She said to me, like, I'm like, I'm, it's not like word for word, but she basically said like, I loved the book. I could not sell this book. I could easily sell, but I don't love it. Uh. And you deserve somebody who does. Right. Like she didn't have the passion for it that she had for my earlier book. And she's like, and she was in a weird transition period too. So she was like, I think this is, I'm like, yeah, this is a good time for maybe both of us to move on since we're not in the same place anymore. And, you know, for anyone who's been in this position or, or is, is thinking about maybe splitting with their agent, like, I know getting into the query trenches again is so scary, you know, like, cause there's two things I never want to do again. I never want to date again and I never <laughs> want to have to query again. So like, I get it, you know, but it's possible, you know, like I found my second agent, um, fairly quickly. Um, part of it, like I was very lucky, like, cause I had kind of built a name for myself. I have a lot of mystery writing friends. So some of them were like, can I see the early chapters? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll recommend you to my agent, you know? And also I did some cold querying, which, you know, turned out really well. So like I signed a new agent almost immediately. The book sold at auction within two weeks, you know? Wow. So it's one of those, Amazing. yeah, it's one of those, <laughs> like, if you hear it, it sounds like, oh, she's an overnight success. She got an agent in like two weeks and then sold the book in two. Like, no, <laughs> there was like, I started my first book back in 2015, you know, like this, this is, it's been a while. Yeah. And it often is. And I think people don't think about or don't hear about everything that can happen or they have a book that they've poured all of this love and attention and energy into, and it takes them to a certain point, but it doesn't go further. And then they think, mm -hmm. oh, that's it. This is proof that I'm not supposed to do this. Mm -hmm. When really it could just be timing. Like who knows mm -hmm. what could happen for that book now? Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, honestly, like I still love that first book I read. And like one of the good things is like my skills, thankfully, have leveled up over the years. And so I guess one saving grace is that what I wanted to do with my very first book that didn't sell, I feel like I didn't have the skills that I quite like it, it was a good read. Like if I had gone out, I still would have been very, very proud of it as like my as literally the first attempt I've ever made. But it wouldn't have achieved what I wanted it to necessarily, just because I I knew I didn't have the skills. Um, and I technically still have an R and R, you know, which like doesn't really go like a R and R means revise and resubmit um, with an editor. So like it's not dead. It's just tabled until I mean, you know, I have these books on contract, and also until like I until I know where I want to take it, right? If I'm going to take the time to revise it, I've poured so much of myself into that very first book. That first book is so me, it's almost painful. I want to make sure I do it right if it does go out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. This is such an, I find that this is such a challenge and there's no solution for it, but, <laughs> but it's just something that I think every writer deals with is that you're always a more skilled writer at the end yeah. of writing the book than when you had the initial idea and you wish you could time travel back to the beginning and write it with the awareness you have. But the only way mm -hmm. to get that awareness is to write the book. So there's just yeah. no way to avoid it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's oh man, like even now, like, I don't know if I can read Arsenic in a Double Winner Falling. Like I am so so proud of this book, you know, like, again, I did what I could with the knowledge and skills that I had at the time that I wrote it, you know, and again, I started in 2018. Um, but like, even now, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, I look right on like my book two and book three, I'm just like, yeah, you know what? No, I, I can't go back. I, I can't change it. Right. Like yeah. it's, it's almost like this weird testament to who you were at the time that you wrote it. I think this is a really nice thing about series though, is that you, mm -hmm. you get to at least with the same, you know, obviously if you're writing a mystery, often some of the characters are no longer with us later on, <laughs> but for the main characters mm -hmm. and the ones that you're 
really invested in and that have a plot arc in addition to the mystery, mm-hmm. that you do get to apply that knowledge. And I think that's one of the lovely things about writing mystery. Have you found that to be the case as you're working forward in the series? Yeah, because I mean, I've heard like a lot of people throw in the term like book two syndrome. Like I heard about a lot with like my writer friends and like basically book two syndrome is like book two is like a million times harder than the first book. Um, and it's true because like one, like you have a deadline, right? Like I took over a year half in that on, on Arsenic and Adobo. This one I had to turn in a draft in like nine months, you know, and I'm not a fast writer, which is why plotting is kind of important if you have to be writing on a deadline, right? You have to kind of know where you're going. Um, and also like, yeah, like you said, because I am where I am now, I feel like there's so much more I can say and want to say. And I'm hoping that I'm able to better fit it into the narrative. Um, I'm, I'm being a little more, like it still fits nicely within the confines of a cozy, but I feel like I'm trying to push it a little bit more of like what you expect because, I still want it to be fun. I still want it to be pure as kid. Like I want you to be able to take it to a beach and just be like, oh, that was great. And that's fine. Like that's all I'm really asking for because like, especially after last year, that's what I need. That's all I'm reading is beautiful, fun, happy things. But but that still have like real issues in it, you know? Um, and that's what I want to write. So I'm trying to massage those things in better, make Lila more of a real character and not a static character, which I feel happens so much with series. I mean, obviously there's only so much I can make her change per book because I'm, you know, like it, it, to be reasonable, but at the same time, she's like, there's a reason I made her 25. Um, because like when I was 25, I thought I knew everything and there was just so much to learn and grow and I'm still learning and growing. So I wanted that for her as well. You know, I wanted her to be in there. Like she, she starts off kind of like a little bit bratty, a little bit spoiled. She thinks she has it all together. She thinks she knows what she wants. And I think starting from that point gives her so much room for growth in big and little ways. Oh, definitely. I think yeah. and she also has, <laughs> she has a sort of um, blind spot in the sense of she doesn't realize her impact on other people in some ways or what mm-hmm. their real reaction is to what she's saying and Mm -hmm. doing, which I thought was well done and that you could both see (laughs) what she thought was going on and you could also see what the other character thought was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted like that little bit of like that selfishness that you sometimes you have when you're young and you have big dreams and you don't quite realize the impact that you're having on others around you, you know? And so I'm stuck on one thing you said. Um, Mm -hmm. So you went from, as you said, this expansive process of being able to take as much time as you wanted working mm-hmm. on the book to a nine-month deadline. Mm-hmm. Can we be nerdy? How, <laughs> how did you manage your time in such a way that that was ultimately doable? Um, Tips, well, tricks, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Self-bribing, all yeah. of it. Well, so ugh, like there, there, there were things that like, were kind of good for my real life and not so like, you know, to be completely honest, um, I don't have kids, which I know is like a huge thing, right? I have a very supportive partner with us. He has a steady job. He's the one who makes more money. He's the one where I get the health insurance. So I don't have to worry about that. So like that basis alone puts me in a good place. Um, in a good way, in a bad way, like in the early pandemic time, like literally a month after I sold the book, I got laid off from my job because of the pandemic. Like the the, the school that I worked at, that particular branch shut down completely. And then so I was just like, oh, I guess I'm an unintentional full-time writer. (laughs) So that gave me a lot of time. But what I found for myself is, I mean, it could also be, you know, partly because, you know, I didn't make the choice. It was thrust upon me. There was so much anxiety because the pandemic was still so new because I didn't know, you know, this is my first book. I don't want to mess this up, you, what, you know? And um, so like, there was just so much anxiety. Like I, where I am now, I had to be very honest with myself. I couldn't be a full-time writer as much as I loved the idea because this anxiety was making, was like, it was like paralyzing me. Like I couldn't, even though I had so much time, I couldn't get anything done, which made me feel worse. You know, like it's that weird mm-hmm. paradox where like I have all the time in the world and I can't make it work for me. And like, so that was just, it was suffocating. So, 
know, so now like I got to the point where like, okay, I have a part-time job, like a part-time day job where I have to physically go there and leave my house. Thank goodness. Better for my mental health. Um, we, you talked earlier that how we're both book coaches. I also use that time to become a certified book coach. That's like my side hustle. So, you know, um, reading other people's work and analyzing other people's work always helps my own writing. So like that's Definitely. been really, really helpful for me. And in the meantime, like I, that's how I fit in my writing. You know, like I plot, I outline, I brain, I spend a lot of time on the plotting and brainstorming. And then I fast draft a first, fast, fast for me. You know, I have, I have friends who are like, I wrote a book in a month and I'm like, oh, oh, oh my goodness. What? You know, like, I'm lucky if I wrote like a chapter in the early stages of my drafting and, you know, but yeah. But there's a point where I, I, it does pick up very quickly for me um, because I don't fuss about the little details. Like I said, I'll do the bracket reaction, bracket scene, you know, I'll know what needs to be there, but I won't, but I, it's important to me to get the bones down first. And then I can build in layer by layer. Cause I think especially with mystery, like you're not, you can't fit it all in the first go. Like how would you even do that? Right. So like, I have I, you no know. idea. <laughs> So I build it on layer by layer. Like I make sure the story is there and then I make sure, you know, to um, like the emotion is there and then I fill in the plot holes and then I make it pretty by, you know, plugging in all those descriptions or, or reactions or whatever. I um, love that the description is last. I sometimes just completely forget description and I have to remind myself. I'm like, put senses in there, yeah. <laughs> put in the senses. Like early reader feedback, you know, people were just like, where is she? Like, this is like, like, she's like, th like this story just takes place in a void. Like, what? and I'm just, and I'm just like, fair, you know, you're like, because... I don't know what the walls are. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Because like, especially for cozies and like, you know, they made it really like cozies are like very much about the characters and the setting, right? Like. It, that's a huge draw because it, the character, like the setting has to be a part of the, like, uh, like almost like a character, right? Like the world is what draws you in. Um, and I can't just be like, yeah, she lives in like this fictional Midwestern small town called Shady Palms done. And then they're just like, well, like, what, what does the town look like? Like how you say small, what is small to you? Cause I come from yeah, Chicago. All right. My of small was very different. I had to do, <laughs> I had to talk to some friends and do a little bit of research. Um, and, you know, and then like kind of fill in like little details. So the way I like, I, I put like, for me, <laughs> I put in like just enough that there are some like, like, oh, there's this street and there's this river walk. And like, there's this like little plot. So like I put like, an, and then to give it room to build more in future books. Yep. So you can discover more. Well, we know the restaurants definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a really great um, plot element and one I haven't seen so much before. I mean, there are interests always that the character has mm -hmm. that pulls them in when you've got a main character in a cozy who isn't a detective mm -hmm. and is sort of sucked into it. But I loved the restaurant hopping. I think particularly this is going to be very enjoyable reading for people during the pandemic when we can't go to a restaurant. So it was oh, like, I know. it was like vicarious <laughs> restaurant visiting. <laughs> Oh God, I was telling my, you know, like a lot of people are like, what's like the first thing you want to do? Like after, you know, it's safe again. I'm just like, I want to go out to a restaurant for like a really good bowl of ramen. And they're like, all the things and that's, that's what you want. You want to like, go bowl of soup? I'm like, yes, I want to sit in a nice restaurant and eat a good bowl of ramen because, you know, it's, it's a different experience. <laughs> it's totally different. And so I'm interested, did, did the writing during the pandemic you know, mm -hmm. getting into writing during the pandemic, other than losing the job, which is obviously mm -hmm. a huge deal. But in terms mm -hmm. of taking in input and sensory detail, how is it writing for you when you're not able to do the things that you normally do, go the places you normally do? Because I found mm -hmm. it really weird writing about situations that were not happening during mm -hmm. the pandemic because it was harder to connect to situations that were so different. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, it is difficult like in some ways it was like a nice escape it's like oh wow look at that she could like sit next to her friend <laughs> with like like that's like wild to me like you know <laughs> you know like it's like you're, she's not she, she can see people that's not just through zoom like she can just walk around town and have interaction you know so like it was like a nice bit of escapism in some ways um but like you said like like you're right like there is like a weird disconnect 
you know, like someone was telling me like he re- she was reading a book and like someone hugged their friend and she was like, ah, like he had like a yes. weird like <laughs> visceral reaction or like when she sees it on TV, like all these like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's just like so strange. I'm like, oh yeah, like I get that. So like having to like filter that out and know that, that this is almost like an alternate universe, right? Like this is, you know, it's completely unaffected from that kind of thing. Um, but it did, it, it more affected my second book, but more because like, again, like I was saying, like one, I'm trying to expand more into it's like, it's just like, you know, I was in a darker place, which is something I have to be careful. Cause like, again, there has to be some levity because we're talking about murder, but at the same time, these books are meant to be fun and more hopeful, you know? So that is something where like, Ooh, revise, revise, revise. <laughs> so it was more about like the, like, the mental space of the character as opposed to like the literal physical space. I, I guess that that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had that. Whenever I, I found myself watching a lot of historical mm-hmm. like films and so on, because I could accept that they could like hug each other and move around. <laughs> but I watch contemporary stuff and be like, <gasps> you know, what are you doing? <laughs> 1.5 meters. Um, yeah. Cause I'm in Europe, but, um, but it's just, I just think it's interesting. I've, I've thought about it a lot because we do often go out and I'm the kind of person who goes and sits in a coffee shop and spies on people. And it's like, Oh, that's a good line. Um, Mm -hmm. and then spins from there, but we had all of that taken away and Mm -hmm. it changes our process. Yeah, completely. You know, you know, like my day job was like, what, kept me you know and because I worked at an international language school so I got to meet so many varied people from around the world and it was like great both for like my obvious you know like personal development and worldview but also like it gave me ideas for characters and now I'm just like well here we go imagination get to work I know (laughs) how do I I don't know yeah (laughs) Yeah, it does. Actually, that's really funny. I've taught in an international language school as well. And there is nothing like the dialogue that comes out of there. Yeah. Nothing. (laughs) It's incredible. So yeah, to lose that, that's a huge source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. So we're getting to the point where the book is going to be out. It's going to, you know, this is the point when everybody, everybody waits for, I think is like the the (sighs) lead up. So how are you feeling as we're getting close to the point when it, when it's available for everybody to have? Oh man. Uh, Like equal parts excited and anxious, you know, and like, it's probably going to sound cliche, but like, I get, you know, it's how many people really think that their dreams are going to come true, you know, and like, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a kid, you know, and the idea that this is actually going to happen so soon, you know, like, I'm already seeing like, um, like, you know, like reviews, um, like both, like both, um, from trade publications and also like, you know, Goodreads, like I don't read Goodreads, but like sometimes people will like tag, like they'll share with me and I'm like, thank you for reading my book. (laughs) You know, I'm trying to, you know, like reviews are for readers, right? That's fair. So like, be honest, but you know, just please don't tag me in anything negative. Um, you know, but like bookstagrammers, (laughs) bookstagrammers have been sharing like these gorgeous photos with like, like, uh, with my e-arcs and I'm just like, (gasps) oh, people who don't know me are reading my words and liking them. Like, I don't under, like, I can't really process that, you know? Cause like, I, you know, again, being completely honest, I wrote this book for me. You know, I wrote the book I really truly wanted to read. You know, yes, there were some revisions made to make it obviously more accessible to a wider audience. Cause that's what I wanted, right? I want the mainstream to kind of know about these things as well. But like, I I wrote this for me. I wrote it for my mom. My mom is the one who got me into cozy mysteries, you know? Um, So the idea that other people around the world are reading my words and it's connecting with them, I can't, oh, I can't even express it. It's so great. Great joy and great anxiety. (laughs) I think that sounds, I think that sounds very much, um, I think that sounds very much like part for the course in terms of I've had people say like they get up to the point where it's about to come out and they're like, I thought this was a great idea. Now I'm worried it might be a terrible idea, but it's going to happen either way. So I think that that's a great moment and how nice to know that the character gets to continue and that you already see where Mm -hmm. she's headed. 
Yeah, that's been a lot of fun seeing how she's going to continue, how she's going to grow and how the people in her life are going to grow. Because like one thing I love about because, you know, it's like an ensemble, you know, a lot of times you love sadly, you know, like you'll like the, the supporting character sometimes even more than the protagonist or like you you love them all together, you know, like writing her best friend Adina was so much fun because she gets to be a little bit more, you know, out there than Lila does. So um, like both Lila and the cast will continue to grow and have different adventures and, you know, different things. So at least, in, at least for three books, hope, like fingers crossed for more, but I, that, that's much I can guarantee. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's been such a joy to get to talk to you more about Arsenic and Adobo and congratulations so much on it. And thank you so much for sharing your experience, getting it to where it is now. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. You know, this is my first official author podcast. So I was really nervous, but chatting with you was really natural and fun. You, you know, you had great questions and I'm really, really happy to share my journey with other people just to, like just so they know they're not alone. You know, it's it's writing can be so solitary. So like if I can give you like one bit of advice, like try to build a community of other writers like I was heavily involved with the mystery community way, 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 like years before I got this deal. And, you know, they helped me get through this. Right now, um, I have like a, a group chat with other Berkeley publishing debuts. Like we, we call ourselves the Berkeleys. And, and like we are what we help each other get through this process because for some people it's completely new they literally know no other writers they have no idea what to expect it can be so lonely and so scary and so opaque like you, there's no like publishing 101 you know like you don't know what you don't know um so like finding those people who can like cheer you on support you maybe teach you some things you don't know it, it's integral to this process like, I don't Great. know what I would do without them. <laughs> Such good advice. Such good advice. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.